glad you came out this morning. Uh, just as a reminder that we are going back to having you write down your prayer uh, requests or praise points. And uh, so there are cards over here at the table when you come in. And uh, you can just pick one of those up, fill it out. And uh, if you've already done that and you would like that to be collected, just uh, hold it up and Steve's going to come around and uh, collect those. Uh, if not now, we'll do it again at the end. That's, um, that's, uh, appreciate your cooperation with that. It makes it uh, so much more accurate <laughs> when uh, you write it down as opposed to when we do. If you do have something come up during the week, we've had several people uh, go through the Lawson Road online and uh, put in their prayer requests there. And uh, so we've, we're able to print those out and uh, have them all ready to go Sunday morning. And uh, that, that also is a tremendous help for us. All right. So we are in week two of our Christmas uh, series, I suppose, sermon series. And uh, we're going to be begin today in uh, chapter one of Revelation. Um, not our usual Christmas reading, I know. But uh, chapter 1 of Revelation. I'm going to start in verse 12. The Apostle John is describing a vision that he has received. He says here, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now, look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. This vision of Jesus upon the throne of heaven is a powerful image. Um, no one's going to mess with this person, are they? Look at, look at what, what jumped out to you. Was it eyes of blazing fire, feet like bronze glowing in a furnace, a voice like a waterfall, a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth? That's strange, but he's the first and last. He is... We're, we're told um, the living one who was dead and now is alive has defeated death. And so I don't know what your picture is when you pray about who you pray to. Uh, do you pray to a God in a manger like this? Or do you pray to a God who is sitting on a throne that is, fits this description given here in Revelation Chapter 1, maybe it's something in between. Because we develop these pictures, I believe, of who God is 
and who it is that we're addressing and worshiping. And so don't we want to pray to a God who is big and powerful? Why would we want that? Because our problems, the reasons we're talking to him, often seem big and powerful. Obstacles that we can't get over or around. And we want someone who is bigger than the problem to come and remove that problem. Whether it be a health issue, whether it be a relational crisis, whether it be a work challenge, whatever financial difficulties, whatever it might be. We want somebody who is bigger than the problem to fix the problem. But sometimes I wonder, could it be that we want somebody who is that big and fearsome because we want to go nuclear on the problem or on the person that is standing in our way? And so I love this image of Jesus. And it's a true and an accurate image. But there's a reason that is presented here at the end of the New Testament. This is the throne that Jesus left. And we talk about that uh, last week in in Philippians chapter 2. It's also the throne to which Jesus returned. But it's not how Jesus lived his life on earth. And this is not the example that he's given to us to follow. Revelation 1 is not the example given to us to follow. And so while the idea of a strong and powerful God is an important one, we need to be careful about how we allow these concepts to influence our thinking. Now there are certainly moments where God presents himself that way throughout scripture. Okay? He doesn't just wait until Revelation. Uh, I I think of Moses and the the Red Sea, where God parts the waters, the Israelite nation travels through the waters on dry land, escapes the Egyptian army. And the, uh, the power of God is clear both to his people, the Israelites, and to his enemies, the Egyptians. There's no denying it. But we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that even in that moment, as God is doing this miraculous work, that the man standing on the bank holding up his staff that the waters might be parted is Moses. Moses, when God found him, when God called him, was living in the wilderness. He was a, perhaps a political refugee herding sheep in the wilderness. He was a man who didn't want to lead God's people and who protested that he was such a poor public speaker that God needed to find someone else to do all the talking for him. Moses needed a powerful and strong God. But Moses is also the great leader that led Israel through the wilderness for those 40 years that kept them focused on God the majority of that time that was faithful through all the ups and downs, and reached the border of the promised land. But this image of Moses in the wilderness, before God called him, is what brings us to today's text in 2 Corinthians 12. It was just read for us. 
in verse, well, we'll start in verse 9. As you saw in the, in the context there, hopefully, um, Paul has been sort of attempting to um, confirm his credentials to the Corinthian church. Apparently, people there had been saying, who is this guy? Why does he know more than we do? What gives him authority over us? He's not even part of us. Right? And, and think about it. We would probably, if somebody from Syracuse suddenly started telling us how we should run things at Lawson Road, we might have much the same reaction. Right? Who's that person? What do they know about us? And so Paul is, is says, okay, it seems like I have to get into this bragging match to, to you know, convince you that God is speaking through me that I have authority over what is going on. And, and so he, he calls it foolishness. But he gets to the end of it, yeah, this, this section in verse 9, and, and he has described how God has given him a thorn in the flesh. And three times he's asked God to remove it. And we don't know what that thorn was. People have made guesses, but they're guesses. And each time he asks, or, or at the end of this asking, God gives him this message. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Right, there's our paradox for today. That God's power is made perfect in weakness. It's stated by Paul at the end of verse 10. He says, when I am weak, then I am strong. Right? And so that makes no sense from a grammatical perspective. Okay? You can't be weak and strong at the same moment. But Paul says that we can. He says, therefore, back in verse 9, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Now think about this. When God says, hey, Paul, I'm sorry that you have this thorn, but I want you to be weak. Let me ask you, have you ever considered, does God want you to be weak? <laughs> Isn't a more popular message about God's will for your life that God wants you to be successful? That God wants you to be happy? That God wants you to live to your fullest, to reach your full potential, to use the gifts that you have given for His glory and to expand His kingdom, that to, to see the borders of your influence expand for his, his benefit? Like, they're all growth kind of images, aren't they? And, and they're, they're the books that you'll find on the Christian bookstore shelves. And, and, and I'm not saying they're completely wrong, but God's message for Paul, somebody who expanded the borders of God's kingdom as much as anyone, but God's message for Paul is, Paul, I want you to be weak. And that doesn't sell as many books. And I think it can be a difficult message for us to hear. That God wants us to be weak because it's only when we're weak that we can experience God's strength. So we have this... Oh, thanks Ernest that you're back there. Um, get us started with the clicker. Uh, but we, we have, one of the reasons it's difficult for us, I think, is that 
We assign values to these words. Okay? So, strong, good or bad? It's good, right? And weak, good or bad? It's bad, right? So, so we've got that deeply ingrained within us. That given a choice, most of us would choose to be strong rather than weak. Anybody seen an ad for a gym that'll help you grow in weakness? <clears throat> I mean, there's plenty of gyms that'll make you feel weak because <clears throat> that person next to you is lifting three times as much as you are. Okay? But there's very few programs, except here at Lawson Road today, that will help you train to be weak rather than strong. So here's what happens, though. Strong, I think, is, is good. And uh, let's see if we have this working now. No, it's not. Let's work that. Oh, now we are. Okay, strong is a positive word. And the problem is, aside from my clicker, you're just going to have to keep going, Ernest. Get to the bottom of that column. It's powerful. Okay, and then there's, but, but power can be a good thing or it can be a bad thing. Oftentimes, power gets turned into bullying, doesn't it? And so, if we click again, um, we've got three more words there. And, and they're all sort of words that are associated with strength. But it's, and, and I'm not saying everybody follows this progression as though it's inevitable. But I think enough people follow this progression, that we recognize its reality. That what starts out as strength is, is something that's desirable. There's not that many steps between strength and abuse. But that doesn't mean that anybody really wants to be on the other side of this equation. Thanks, Ernest. We'll see the first one up there is that weakness is generally viewed as a negative. Why is that? Because as we keep coming down that list, uh, go again, Ernest, and one more. We see that these words are, none of them are desirable. Right? None of us say, oh, yeah, I want to be weak so that I can be exploited. I want to be weak so that I can be dependent upon others. I want to be weak so that people can hurt me. I want to be weak so that I can be abused. None of us say, oh yeah, that's, I'm signing up for that. And Paul wasn't signing up for that either, was he? Uh, however, there may be times when we think about Jesus' instructions to love our enemies or to turn the other cheek, that, that there are moments where it may feel like this is the case. There'll be times that we're hurt because we follow Jesus. Jesus himself was hurt. And so we, we have to sort of consider what does it mean to be weak when, when God says, Paul, I want you to be weak so that I can be strong. Is God just a bully who's going to use his strength to beat us up if, he doesn't, if things don't go his way? How is strength revealed in weakness? I think the the point is not that we become turned into doormats here, but rather that we tap into not our strength, but the strength of God. 
So it's not as though we're left strengthless. It's just that the strength is not our own. So we can go to the blank slide there, Ernest, and I think we're done with that. <coughs> you know what? If I had turned that on, that would have done that would have gone better. <laughs> Someone remind me next week. <coughs> Speaking of weakness. <coughs> Yeah, let's go to Luke chapter 1. <coughs> In Luke chapter 1, I think we find another biblical example of weakness, and uh, that is uh, the, the example of Mary. Is there a better example than, than that? Uh, I'm going to, to read here, starting in verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel, to Gabriel, the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. So do you notice Mary's question there in verse 34? How can this be? Mary asked, since I am a virgin? It's a perfectly natural question. Um, she understood human biology, the reproductive system. And, and she says, what's, what's going on? And so the angel explains that the child will be given her by the Holy Spirit. Now I want you to think about possible responses in this situation. There's probably hundreds of possible responses if an angel tells you that you're about to have a child um, when you have no reason to expect one. Uh, I, I think the first one that comes to, to mind perhaps might be, uh-uh, <coughs> no way, stay away from me, back up. Right? That's not happening. Don't want that. Um, maybe another would be just to throw water on your face to see if it's a dream, right? Something's going on here. This isn't making sense. Uh, or, or maybe, maybe someone might respond, yeah, I'm ready for this. Bring it on. The bigger the challenge, the stronger I am. I'm a strong, independent woman. I can handle whatever life throws at me. This is going to be weird, but I can do it. Or you could sort of take a, you know, well, whatever. Whatever it is, I guess it's going to happen whether I 
sign up or not? Mary's choice is simply to say, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. I don't think she understands what's going on, right? She was probably pretty young in her teens. Her Joseph was probably about at least 10 years older than her. Um, it was, you know, she's learning how the world operates pretty quickly. And uh, she says, all right, whatever God wants, I'm signing up for. She submits to God. But I want you to just look how consistent her acceptance of her changed circumstances is. And her understanding of her relationship with God. In verse 45 here of chapter 1, we didn't read that, but if you come down and look at it, uh, she goes to visit Elizabeth, her cousin, and Elizabeth greets her, and as part of that greeting, she says, Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill His promises to her. Mary wasn't just going along with it. She believes that God is going to do what He says He's going to do. And, and, ha- and, and think about those promises. You're like, it's natural for us to focus on the pregnancy. Right? That's certainly the headline. I, I don't think there's any doubt. But did you catch all the other promises that were made? So, in verse uh, 32, there's this promise about her son. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will have no end. So perhaps you might hear in your mind something more along the lines of, I will make you immeasurably rich. I will put you in a palace. I'll make you the mother of a king who is the greatest king the world has ever seen. Just carry this pregnancy to term. And so maybe that's the promise that she had, but whatever it was, she believed it. She believed that God was going to do what he told her he would do. Now, Mary didn't make any claims that she was deserving of this. She didn't run around and say to everybody, you know, I was a pretty good girl. Yeah, I, I, I routinely did what my parents told me to do. I, I deserve this. God clearly picked me out because I did my chores better than anyone else in Galilee. She, she didn't have a sense that she had earned this. That, that she was like, oh yeah, you know, this is what happens. God blesses you and does good to you. When you get up before dawn, when you polish not only your own shoes, but the shoes of your siblings and your parents, when you cook breakfast for everyone in the house, when, when you're the kindest, most humble person in the whole region, then, then God is going to be kind to you and give you blessings. She didn't have that attitude either. In, in fact, she recognized her dependence upon God. And we're not told much about how she handles having Jesus as a child. Right? We've got the one story about him as a child and the going to the temple. 
he seems like a handful. Um, it, it seems like Mary would have had her hands full. Right? You've got this one perfect kid and other kids that are less than perfect. Did that make it easier or more difficult? It'd be hard not to have a favorite, wouldn't it? Um, did the other kids used to bully him? Uh, how, how did it, was she always trying to settle the peace? How did, that, how did that work out? But she apparently handled it. However difficult it might have been, she handled it. Because she got through it. She's there when Jesus begins his ministry. She has a relationship with him. And, and he turns out all right himself, doesn't he? God rewarded her faithfulness and her humility, and he gave her the strength that she needed to get through those difficult moments. And so Mary has her own version of our, of our um, paradox of the week. Okay. Sorry, I've got one more there. No, it's still not working. All right. So um, it, it, our paradox from uh, 2 Corinthians says, to be strong, we have to be weak. Mary, in verse 47, includes this line in her song. She says, My soul glorifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble estate of his servant. She recognized who she was, that she was somebody who was in a situation in life that was humble. She had no pretensions about her greatness. But God has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. And then it says, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. So, God is, she is praising God. She's worshiping God. She's because he recognized her weakness at the very beginning. And notice why all generations are going to call her blessed. She, she says, look, God has done this for me. She's a realist. God has promised that everyone is going to know who I am. That something great and miraculous is, going to, is happening in my life. But it's because, in verse 49, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. So think about your life. When you were perhaps a younger person, maybe a teenager, maybe going to college, making career decisions, did you aspire to greatness? Did people encourage you to greatness? Did people encourage you at all the opportunities that are out there for you? Study hard, work hard, take advantage of those opportunities, move forward, and, and, and see what you can be done. Mary says, you know, I know that I really didn't come from very much. But the mighty one, God has done great things for me. And isn't that a different message for us to pass on to the next generation? Let's see what God is going to do for you. Let's see what God is, how God is going to work through you and in you. I mean, do all those things, study hard, work hard. But your accomplishments and your influence in life, it's going to come through God 
working through you, not through your efforts. So let's make it personal then. Mary was able to do that. Let's make it personal for us. How's your weakness? Paul said that he would rather boast about his weakness. So what if I told you that I had a video camera set up downstairs in the foyer, and on the way out, we're going to make a video of everyone. We're going to show it up here on the screen next week, one by one. Instead of a sermon, I'm taking the week off. Um, and you have a choice. You get to tell a story about a time when you helped someone, or you get to tell a story about a time when you needed help. First of all, which one would you rather tell? Which one, come, which one do you have the more stories about? Don't we want to make ourselves the hero of our own stories? Yeah. Well, there was this time there was somebody on the side of the road and it was an interstate and there were trucks flying past, but I saw they needed stuck and they didn't seem to have a cell phone, so I pulled over and one of them came this close. You know, like we, we got that tire changed and they were on their road and there were five kids in the car that were hungry and it was, you know, I gave them food to get them to the next town and, but, you know, we don't want to be that person because it makes us seem like, oh, we weren't prepared, or oh, we didn't have a spare, we hadn't packed properly, we didn't have the food we need. Like, and, and so we're hesitant to expose our weaknesses, generally speaking. Certainly not to boast about them. I am the person at Lawson Road that needs the most help. We don't want that up on the wall. Most helped person this month. <laughs> right, Judy? <laughs> and, and yet Paul says, I'm going to boast about my weaknesses. Because when I boast about my weaknesses, God's strength becomes evident. So in the time that I have left, I want to give you some reasons to cons consider pursuing weakness. Weakness or dependence upon God. This is number one. And, and, and so when I say weakness, perhaps replace that idea, there's different concepts behind that, but one of them is dependence upon God. It transforms our lives as we no longer need to prove ourselves. It transforms the way we live because we no longer need to prove ourselves. Now, I don't think I'd have much success telling that to 20-year-old me. But when we're allowing God to work through us, we don't need to prove ourselves. God already accepts us. God already lives within us. God already values us. And so it, we, we go through life as we, as we go through life, we make efforts to reduce our own ego. Not proving ourselves, but allowing God to shine through. The second, perhaps, reason to pursue weakness is that weakness or vulnerability allows us to empathize and to love more fully. And, and we get this when we talk about Jesus. One of the great things about the Incarnation 
is we're told that he was tempted, tested in every way as we are. This is common to man, right? That, that because God became human, he has walked in our shoes. He relates to us. Now he makes intercession for us. Because, and, and that gives us comfort because we think, oh, well, yes, he understands me better. And so when we are vulnerable about our weaknesses, then we can empathize and love people better. And and so then we come to the the third reason to pursue weakness. And and by weakness, this time I'm, I'm thinking of the idea of trust. Weakness requires trusting God. And trusting God more and more grows our ability to live all of life for God. Think about this, that when, when perhaps you're baptized, many of us, our motivation is to take care of our sin problem, right? to, to restore relationship with God. And so I want relationship with God, and I trust Him to take care of that sin problem so that I can have that relationship with Him. Right? It, it's a pretty narrow range of trust. And then as we go through life, we... We, it gets bigger, right? We, we run into a job crisis. And all of a sudden we find ourselves praying and trusting God to help us in that job crisis. Right? And so it's expanding. Our trust is expanding. Our weakness is also growing, right? Because it's a crisis. It's a job situation that we don't have the strength to deal with. And, and we, we maybe... We, we learn, maybe without a crisis, maybe we just grow and we learn, I need to trust God for my marriage or for this relationship. And, and, and our trust and our relationship with God goes, I need to, to incorporate that trust in my life. And, and then as it continues to expand, we find more and more areas and ways in which to trust God to help me in this place in life. That... I, the experience he's given me, the gifts he's given me, the wisdom he's given me, the friends and the advice he's given me, they're all part of it. And, and some of the answers I've learned over time and I just know them when I confront these problems, but I still recognize that God has given those to me and when I confront something that I'm unfamiliar with, I can trust him to get me through it, whatever it is. But that, that weakness is something that grows over time as our trust in God grows over time. And then the last one that I have here today is that weakness prompts us to listen better and to grow closer to God. You see, I think that goes hand in glove with the idea of dependence, right? If we're dependent on God, we want to be close to God. We want to know God. And and so we, we spend time with Him. That's how He speaks to us and guides us. And uh, as we, we recognize our need for his presence in our lives. Now, from personal experience, I can affirm that this isn't easy. You're right. We want to trust God, but we also want to be strong and assertive. We want to be determined. We want to be tough. We want to be resilient. We want to be assert, um, independent. And so part of this is that we need to redefine weakness. You see, Moses was weak when God called him, and and his leadership didn't turn him into a strong person. 
It actually turned him into a weaker person as he depended upon God to guide him and lead him through that wilderness and to lead those people. Um, Mary was weak, but she survived extraordinary circumstances because of God's presence in her life and her dependence upon him. And despite the miracles that we see in Jesus' life, Jesus made himself weak to live amongst us, accepting, allowing himself to be crucified, accepting God's power to resurrect him. That's dependence, right? <laughs> right? You, you sort of got that, you know, I'm going to step into the trunk at the front of the magic show and allow myself to be stabbed with spears and twisted with boxes and, and I'm going to trust that guy and then he's going to get me out of it. But Jesus says, I'm going to trust myself to go through the crucifixion, to be placed in a coffin, in a tomb, and then I'm going to trust God to raise me back to life again. And it was only after that that Jesus assumed his place on the throne that we read about in Revelation chapter 1. So the, the role model for us to follow is not Jesus on the throne that we read at the beginning in Revelation 1. It's the life that he lived here among us that began in a manger with Mary as his mother. And so I love, and I know I've shared this with you before, but I don't think it was too recently. In Revelation chapter 5, we have another image of Jesus. And, and there's this predicament. I'm not going to go into all of it, but there's this predicament in heaven. There's a scroll that needs to be opened in order for justice to roll out of heaven onto earth, for things to come to the right conclusion. But they need to find the right person to open the scroll. And John is in a bit of a tither about it. All of heaven is a flutter. And then in verse 5, one of the elders said to me, Revelation 5 verse 5, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll with its seven seals. Great news. And do you notice the words of strength in that verse? Okay, Who is it that's going to open the scrolls? It's the lion of the tribe of Judah, the biggest and the strongest tribe where Jerusalem is located. It's the root of David, the greatest king in the history of Israel, and has triumphed. There's no doubt he's going to be able to open the scroll. The perfect person, says the elder. And then John continues, Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. Whoa, hang on, what? The lion has become a lamb, and not just a lamb, looking as if it had been slain. Standing at the center of the throne. That's who's on the throne now. And then... Uh, Jump down and we see in uh, verse 7, he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And then in verse 9, then and now everyone is singing and they're saying, you are worthy, talking to the lamb, to take the scroll to open the seals because, because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign on the earth. You see, the greatest triumph of Jesus in heaven is not when he sits on the throne in majesty. As the lion of Judah, the root of David, the one who has triumphed. 
The greatest moment of Jesus on the throne in heaven is when he sits as the lamb who has been slain. The one who can open the seal because with his blood he purchased you and I, people of every language and tongue and tribe and nation around the world, to form us into the kingdom of God. And so Jesus personifies what it means to be strong. We have to become weak. I think that's a paradox that all of us have to wrestle with in our lives.